Hello, I'm Dr. Luis Ostrowski, Chair of the Guidelines Committee for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. I would like to welcome you to IDSA's Clinical Guidelines Podcast Series, where we will regularly keep you up to date on new guidelines published by IDSA. Leading this program is Dr. Neil Skolnick, who is a professor of family and community medicine at Temple University School of Medicine and the associate director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at Abington Memorial Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Skolnick. Thank you. This issue, we're going to talk about the practice guidelines for the diagnosis and management of skin and soft tissue infections, 2014, an update by the Infectious Diseases Society of America that was published in Clinical Infectious Diseases. The guidelines discuss recommendations for the diagnosis and management of skin and soft tissue infections. The topic is important because there are 6.3 million physician office visits per year attributable to skin and soft tissue infections. Both the complexity and the number of skin infections are increasing. For instance, between 1993 and 2005, annual emergency department visits for skin infections increased from 1.2 million to 3.4 million patients. With regard to complexity, we all know there's an increasing emergence of resistant infections. Joining us today is the Chair of the Skin and Soft Tissue Guidelines Committee, Dennis L. Stevens. Dr. Stevens is Chief of Infectious Diseases at the VA Medical Center in Boisley, Idaho. Welcome, Dr. Stevens. Well, thank you, Neil. Thank you for, for inviting me to participate. Let's begin our discussion talking about the appropriate evaluation and treatment of empatigo and ecthyma. Dr. Stevens? Well, empatigo can be caused by a, a number of organisms, in particular Staph aureus, usually methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus, but also group A strep. Uh, ecthyma is a little bit different. It's a little bit deeper, and it's uh, usually related with Staph aureus strains that produce a uh, toxin that breaks down the epidermal barrier. So they're a little bit uh, a little bit deeper, and they can be associated with scarring of the skin, whereas Impetigo just involves the very superficial layers of the skin and uh, doesn't cause scarring. Uh, we recommend that gram stain and culture of pus or exudates from uh, these lesions be uh, uh, obtained to try to identify whether it's Staph aureus or beta hemolytic streptococcus. And uh, in general, the treatment of bullous and non-bullous impetigo can be with topical agents such as bupirocin or retipunulin for uh, basically a five-day course. Uh, <clears throat> for eczema, uh, if one elects to use oral treatment for these, it's usually based on the fact that there may be extensive uh, skin lesions, and we certainly have seen that in some homeless individuals, for example. Uh, so if it's extensive, you may want to not only use the uh, topical agent, but an oral antibiotic that's uh, effective against methicillin-susceptible strep or staph, uh, but, but also uh, would get uh, group A strep. And occasionally, one also needs to 
uh, try to interrupt an epidemic that's going on in the daycare or uh, various places where there's multiple cases of particularly group A strep in Patigo. And that's largely to try to prevent the spread of the infection in that particular environment. And as we all know, group A strep in Patigo can be associated with post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. So that, those, are, those are excellent points. Now, question about uh, gram stains. Many primary care physicians don't have, uh, at this point, gram stains still available in their office. Uh, for routine epitigo, is that essential or simply recommended? No, I don't think it's absolutely essential, but uh, if there's multiple cases uh, there or if the lesions are extensive, then I think uh, gram stain may not be uh, appropriate depending upon the practice situation. But we do recommend that these be cultured because uh, uh, if, if these things are spreading throughout the environment, it's, it's good to know what the appropriate antibiotic uh, to use would be. Tell us about the recommended evaluation and treatment for purulent skin infections, specifically cutaneous abscesses, furuncles, and carbuncles. We have spent a lot of time trying to develop an algorithm that uh, tries to describe how to treat uh, furuncles, carbuncles, and uh, cutaneous abscesses that are usually caused by Staph aureus. Um, and <clears throat> there are several things that have to be taken into consideration. One is the, uh, the, the initial presentation, what the skin lesion looks like. Is it draining pus or has it got a big head on it that contains pus? Uh, then the second question is, what is the uh, systemic signs of infection? Um, and that's important because if patients have fever, or elevated white count or tachycardia, uh, then antibiotics, uh, in addition to incision and drainage of these lesions, is important. In the absence of those things, it's, it, it's the recommendation of the guidelines committee to just do incision and drainage. And in that particular situation, it's not necessary to, uh, to do cultures. But if patients uh, fail that regimen or if they have those systemic signs of infection, then we recommend uh, either a gram stain or a culture, preferably, uh, to determine whether this is going to be methicillin-sensitive or methicillin-resistant. For those moderate infections with systemic signs, usually an oral antibiotic such as Septra or doxycycline has, has been shown to be effective. And then as we move into patients that have more severe signs of systemic infection, then we recommend uh, that the patient be given a systemic antibiotic uh, that has activity against methicillin-resistant staph. And that's largely because we don't want to take a chance that uh, this is going to progress to uh, something like necrotizing fasciitis or toxic shock syndrome and so on. And we, we have a whole list of uh, antibiotics that have been approved uh, 
for the treatment of skin and soft tissue infections caused by MRSA, and uh, they are listed uh, in uh, Figure 1. That's great, and, and just to emphasize something that you said, because I think it is uh, a little bit different than what many people do, that for that isolated, um, relatively small skin abscess, that simply incision, not simply, but incision and drainage is sufficient without the use of antibiotics and, and reserving antibiotics for uh, uh, larger uh, infections and infections that also have some systemic signs. Yeah, that's um, true. And, you know, there, there's always exceptions, of course. And, you know, if, if this happens to be a, a large furuncle or carbuncle on the face uh, or the tip of the nose uh, or the patient is, has HIV or diabetes, uh, those kinds of things, then uh, then things get a little bit muddied and one may want to use uh uh, an oral antibiotic in addition to incision and draining. Let's now talk about our next topic. What are the recommendations for treatment of erysipelas and for cellulitis? Well, erysipelas and cellulitis, uh, you know, in, in my view are, are different, uh, but in the view of many, they are uh, common. Erysipelas is usually characterized by well-demarcated edges um, and a brilliant scarlet red color. And uh, cellulitis is usually more of a pinkish uh, with less distinct margins. And cellulitis typically occurs in the subcutaneous uh, area of the skin, whereas erysipelas uh, occurs in the more outer a layer of the skin. And uh, the important thing is that these organisms are usually caused by streptococci, uh, group A, group B, group C, or group G. And group B streptococcus uh, infections almost invariably occur in diabetic patients. And group C's and G's can uh, can also cause uh, cellulitis, uh, but not usually uh, the, the erysipelas that I described. So these organisms are are quite sensitive to narrow spectrum antibiotics such as uh, penicillin or amoxicillin or first generation cephalosporin. And in Figure One, we have sort of divided the uh, these erysipelas and cellulitis uh, kinds of infections into non-purulent infections. And there are three categories, uh, mild, moderate, and severe. So the mild ones, uh, again, with patients that don't have systemic signs of infection uh, or are not, not immunocompromised, and oral antibiotics I just described is usually very effective. In patients that have systemic signs of infection or are compromised, then it, it generally these patients may require hospitalizations and should receive uh, intravenous antibiotic therapy. And then those with very severe uh, uh, non-purulent skin and soft tissue infections with uh, impressive signs of systemic uh, 
uh, inflammation such as hypotension, tachycardia, markedly elevated white count, or a very low white count, uh, we need to make those patients still have a deeper infection, such as uh, necrotizing fasciitis or gas gangrene. And in some cases, those can be very life-threatening and devastating, and they require broader-spectrum antibiotics, uh, uh, emergent surgical intervention to determine the depth of the infection, and then obviously debridement of uh, necrotic tissue. And just to uh, re-clarify, though, for non-purulent cellulitis that is mild, even in this era of increasing uh, antibiotic resistance and MRSA, there for mild cellulitis, we can use more targeted therapy. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And, uh, you know, generally, 99% of the time, uh, group Staph aureus produces a purulent infection. And there may be some redness around a furuncle or a carbuncle. Uh, we don't consider that cellulitis. We consider that erythema around a purulent infection. So cellulitis and erysipelas are, are generally not associated with pus, and they usually are uh, more rapidly spreading and a diffuse process without an underlying uh, focus of infection. Okay. Uh, how about management of surgical site infections? Well, we were privileged to have on our committee uh, Dr. Patchen Dillinger, who has done yeoman's work on uh, surgical site infections. And uh, he's developed a, a figure, too, which basically describes uh, the operation and then whether patients have fever in the first 48 hours or greater than four days after the operation. And he points out that that it's uncommon that a surgical site infection within the first 48 hours is associated with fever. And uh, so the approach there is if if the wound is normal to exam, then you, you seek another source of fever, and that can be uh, things such as a pulmonary embolus, a urinary tract infection, those sort of things. If there is redness or induration around the surgical site, then the recommendation is to open the wound. And if the patient does not have fever or an elevated white count, then you basically just do dressing changes and no antibiotics. In contrary, if the patient does have systemic signs of infection, um, then you begin antibiotics and uh, do uh, dressing changes. Yeah, and then over in the uh, fever in the first 48 hours uh, of infection, uh, that is unlikely to represent a wound infection. And if there's no systemic signs of uh, infection and there's no evidence of wound infection, then you just observe. If there is fever and systemic signs of infection, and wound training to mark local signs of inflammation, then 
basically you do a gram stain to rule out streptococci and clostridia. And if those are found, then the wound needs to be opened, debrided, and penicillin and clindamycin need to be started. So the, the devastating kinds of infections that occur in the first 48 hours after the surgical uh, procedure are more likely to be streptococci and clostridia. Denny, I don't know how you went over that, that figure two in the guidelines is a wonderfully laid out figure, but like when you first look at it, there are about 16 branch points and, and it, it looks like it's going to be overwhelming, but it's actually incredibly well organized. I'd really encourage our, our listeners to take a look at it. How you just talked through the whole figure is beyond me, but that was wonderful because it really is, um, the figure is, and your description is very clear about where the branch points are and, and what to do with different types of infections. Well, I think it provides uh, a guide, and uh, <clears throat> you know, I I think what we've tried to do is to just make sure that unless there's absolute signs of wound infection at the surgical site, that basically. Uh, doing something simple uh, like observing or, if there is redness, to uh, open it up. Usually that's all that's necessary unless there are systemic signs. So, yeah, I think it does make, make sense. Let's now talk about something that's common in the office and often a real challenge, cat and dog bites. What is the role of prophylactic antimicrobial therapy for cat and or dog bites? Well, I think that that's an ex excellent question. And the uh, recommendations from the guideline committee are that uh, presumptive early antimicrobial therapy for three to five days is recommended for patients who are immunocompromised, who uh, have absence of the spleen, have advanced liver disease, have pre-existing or resultant edema of the affected area, or have moderate to severe injuries, especially to the hand or the face, or have injuries that have penetrated the periosteum or joint capsule. And, and obviously with a cat bite, uh, particularly to the hand, <laughs> which is common, it's very easy for, for the cat tooth to penetrate down into, into bone or into synovium. And I think those are all the situations we, we mentioned are, are high risk. Um, in all other categories, it's, the data is, is really kind of confusing. And I, I, there, there was a Cochrane study, for example, that supported the recommendation to limit prophylactic antibiotics to mammalian bites to only those with hand injuries or human bites. Uh, and, and that was a review of eight studies, which, as you might guess, were small. They weren't necessarily good control groups and so on. So I, I think it's in the categories that I mentioned, uh, certainly uh, prophylactic or preemptive treatment is indicated. In, in all the rest, uh, the data really is pretty poor. That, that, that makes sense, and, and the important thing for, for listeners to understand is that particular 
particularly with cat bites, those are tend to be puncture injuries, and when they're on their hand, as you said, it can go right down into the tendon sheath, and you you just never know that by looking. Uh, how about then if we move on to uh, in, infected animal bite wounds? Uh, what are the recommended treatments? Well, the uh, most you know, luckily most dog and cat bites. Uh, are, are caused by an organism called Pastorella multacida. Uh, there could be multiple other organisms uh, as well, but uh, that's the main pathogen. And so the recommendation is to use uh, a drug like uh, amoxicillin clavulinic acid uh, orally or intravenously with unison. And those antibiotics have excellent activity against Pastorella, and they also have excellent activity against uh, a number of anaerobic organisms found in the mouths of dogs and cats. So that would be the, uh, the best treatment for an actual infected uh, cat or dog bite. And, you know, in terms of the duration of therapy, you know, it really depends on the severity of uh, the injury. And, you know, some dog bites can be very severe and require uh, surgical debridement uh, as well as antibiotics. Hmm. Denny, is there a good alternative choice for patients who are penicillin allergic? Yeah, there there are a number of uh, antibiotics that uh, that could be used. Um, uh, doxycycline, uh, 100 milligrams every 12 hours, has excellent activity against Pasteurella, uh, and so on. Or uh, uh, clindamycin has good activity against streptococci, uh, but this is Pasteurella multacida. Uh, a number of second-generation cephalosporins, such as cefuroxime or cefoxetin, uh, by themselves, or ceftriaxone or cefotaxime, have good activity uh, against these organisms as well. And there, okay. there are other choices uh, listed in table. Let's see, what is it? Table five that uh, provide all the other alternatives, including carbapenems, and uh, fluoroquinolones. Excellent. And then tetanus prophylaxis for bites? Yeah, tetanus prophylaxis is indicated if it's been 10 years uh, since uh, pre previous immunization against tetanus. And then the other question that often comes up is about wound closure for, for bite wounds. Well, yeah, it, the, the wound closure is, is, is it's recommended that if if there is a wound to the face, that uh, primary closure uh, can be performed. Um, however, if, if it's on the uh, arm or the leg, then generally speaking, the wound shouldn't be closed. The uh, the wound can be approximated, but uh, but should be left open. Okay. And then the last question I'll have about uh, animal related injuries is uh, how about uh, approach to cat scratch disease? Well, cat scratch disease is is, is certainly it's caused by uh, Bartonella hensi, 
And in normal individuals, usually sometime within 30 to 60 days, there can be infection at, at the site of the cat scratch, but then more proximal lymphadenopathy. And sometimes those lymph nodes can uh, superate and, uh, and drain. So in a normal individual, uh, it's been shown, at least in one study, that azithromycin is the recommended treatment for cat scratch disease. And it uh, certainly did uh, reduce the lymph node size by 80% at 30 days. And, uh, it, and that was much more common in the azithromycin-treated patients. But again, it was only... Uh, a study involving 29 patients, and 14 of whom received azithromycin. And uh, the dose of azithro is obviously needs to be uh, determined based upon the weight of the patient. So if it's a pediatric patient, it's a lower dose and uh, than conventional doses in adults. And that's also described in the um, in the recommendation. Okay. Are there any other things that, uh, of course, in the guidelines, there's also a whole section on approach to skin infections and in immunocompromised patients. For the sake of time, we won't cover that here, but we do refer our listeners to the full guidelines. Is there anything else important that uh, we didn't cover that, that you feel you would like to address? No, I, I think, you know, as time goes on, uh, skin and soft tissue infections or manifestations of systemic infections in the skin in patients that have, uh, that are immunocompromised, that the number of those patients is increasing dramatically. Uh, liver transplants, kidney transplants, bone marrow transplants, cancer chemotherapy patients, um, and, and, and so on. And, and so I think this guideline really provides a pretty good approach to patients not only with neutropenia, but patients that have cell-mediated immunity problems such as HIV and uh, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, those sort, sorts of illnesses. Denny, you know, the guidelines were really incredibly well organized, and I want to thank you for doing such a fantastic job of both concisely and completely uh, going over the guidelines. We covered a lot of ground over the last 25 minutes, talking about empatigo, cellulitis, abscesses, surgical site infections, animal bites. Uh, and again, for all of our listeners and for the IDSA, I want to thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to join us and go over in detail uh, a wonderful overview of the guidelines. Well, thank you much for the invitation, and uh, I was glad to participate. Thank you very much. For the Infectious Diseases Society of America, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and thank you for listening.